Hello, and welcome to another episode of Dungeons and Drama Nerds. My name is Todd, and today I'm joined by ensemble member Chris. Hello. And we have two special guests that are going to chat with us about the New York neo-futurists, the infinite wrench, and producing theater where you race against the clock. Listeners will know our ensemble member and esteemed audio engineer, Anthony Sertel-Dean, but they might not know that they're also a member of the Neos and producer of Hit Play, their podcast... Hi, that's me. Those things are all true. <laughs> and we're also joined by Rob Neal, ensemble member and artistic director of the New York Neo-Futurists. Yes, that is me, and I am happy to be here with you all digitally. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, um, here we go. <laughs> to kick things off, Rob, can you explain for people who don't know sort of the ethos and origins of the New York Neo-Futurists? I'd love to. In 1988 in Chicago, a long, long time ago, in another century actually, uh, they started the the Neo-Futurists in Chicago. Um, And that eventually led to some of us coming here to New York in the mid-90s, which then eventually led to this company, which started in 2004 in Brooklyn, New York, uh, at the Brooklyn Lyceum, uh, which is now Blink Fitness, I believe. Um, yeah, and and the whole idea behind it is it's a, we have a, a collective, an ensemble of writer, director, performers who are tasked, task is a big thing in neo-futurism, with creating uh, short plays that are put in mostly into uh, the delivery mechanism of what used to be called Too Much Light Makes the Baby Go Blind, but is now a show called The Infinite Wrench. And that show is uh, an ever-changing attempt to perform 30 uh, original plays in about an hour or 60 minutes, depending on how you want to look at time. Uh, and and it's, it's not, it's an attempt, so we don't always do it, but we do always change the show. It's always a different order. We're constantly creating t- new plays. And since 2004, we are over 6,500 and almost to 7,000 plays. Yeah, and that's kind of the main push, a main focus, main way that we get art out there and that we collaborate and create. But we also create some longer form shows too that we may want to talk about or not that are based in neo-futurism. And I think it's probably good to say a little bit here about what neo-futurism is mm-hmm. um, or, or what kind of the, 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 the rules in which we create or experiment. And there are four basic tenets. Uh, one, uh, as, a, as a creator, writer, performer. One, you are who you are. Two, you are where you are. Three, you're doing what you're doing. There are the tasks. And four, the time is now. So things actually happen, present moment, in the theater, live, exciting, and you never know what's gonna happen next. Now, I don't need to pitch a whole lot right now. I just all of a sudden got in that mode, sorry. Ha! <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you, to be fair, you, you're, it's, it's muscle memory at a certain point, I imagine. It, it is. People are like, can you just slow down when you... I, I do listen to podcasts at 1.5 speed usually, so I do talk quickly. <laughs> <laughs> Does that answer it all? I don't know. That's the start. Tony, what did yeah. I leave out? You got it. That's the, that's, that's, that's the gist of it. Um, how did we... Yeah, and that's... that's, that's yeah. those and origins we hit those things yeah yeah i mean we have we're a collective so mm-hmm. we have currently uh, 23 ensemble members six technical collaborators and a board of i don't know 
8, 10, 40, something like that. Um, so there's a lot of people that are involved in this and, and, and come together to create these, these little experiments and plays and fight time, time warriors and theater. Yeah, and while I there are uh, <laughs> ensemble members coming in and out, changing um, between weeks, um, relevant for this conversation, there is one element, well, there are a couple elements, so it's also <laughs> the clothesline. There is one constant um, from week to week in this weekly show that we do, and that is on the back wall, we have a bright, shining digital clock that counts down from one hour down to zero zero colon zero zero colon zero zero uh that shows right to the audience how much time we have left in the show or how much time we have left to attempt to perform all 30 plays how much time they have left perhaps is, uh, yeah you know mm. and that and i think that that's it's so interesting first of all i see you've upgraded to digital since my time with the company <laughs> um <laughs> it's a new format new format i think it's rather fun i think it's fun there's a you know um and one of the things that i particularly enjoy especially as a theatrical sort of as a theater practitioner but also just like as a lover of the genre and the medium <clears throat> is the really delicate balance that you all do between sort of like the willing the, the not the normal willing suspension of disbelief which the uh, theater often like goes like uh, uh, relies on and all the things that you're talking about which in many ways are sort of like antithetical to the willing suspension of disbelief this it is here now me we're doing it right 100%. Like, we're, we're all we are where we are like i tell you i'm i tell you i'm in denmark and i and i the audience is under no obligation to believe me you know what i mean like that and that's sort of like a fascinating thing to then still manage to create worlds on stage and like within within some of those plays i'm always sort of like a, a the buy-in is such sort of, sort of a fascinating sort of like play that you guys do anthony i i suppose well we sort of already started start talking about this but mike the next question is to speak a bit more about the infinite wrench and maybe you can speak about the, the mechanics of it as it pertains to how you operate within yeah. that within those within those 60 minutes or hour or depending on how, the flat circle of time sure thing yeah i think there's something really exciting about how you're talking about getting into these worlds that are very much true worlds that don't necessarily have the suspension of disbelief but it is all somewhat within the bounds um, and in the rules of gameplay almost um, because we do have set rules that we have for ourselves at the top of the show we have a clothes line hung above the stage uh, with 30 different pieces of paper on each of the pieces of paper is number one through 30 the audience is given uh, a menu uh, what we call our program a piece of paper that has the play titles listed from one to 30 and it is on the audience to call out and order what play they want to see next. And that's the start of the rules of the game. Um, and even within the plays themselves, once the number has been called, we've set up the stage and we're ready to go into it, creating these theatrical scenarios while still being ourselves in this place doing the thing requires basically set up for a game. You are setting up the parameters in which to play. These are still plays. We're still on stage in a theater playing. And it's really basically 
we've set up the rules and we're going to go into it. Sometimes the rules have a script. Most of the time, the rules have a script and we're following that and we're playing in that way. But there's always room for chaos and chance to come into here. We always say that a good menu, a good show of the infinite wrench has a good deal of risk of uh, pushing something to a point where you might not know what's going to happen. Um, and that's where um, part of this theatrical game comes into play in a really exciting and alive way. Um, I have two small questions about the infinite wrench. So when I lived in New York in like 2013 to 2014, I saw um a number of neo shows and one of my favorite things though i want to know if this still happens um do you still order out if you sell out <sighs> alas that's okay um, currently we do not but that's mostly because of uh the fact that the pandemic kind of took that away from us to that's share fair <laughs> postage stamp slices of pizza with the audience mm. yeah yeah. It was always the best nights, though, when it happened. Like, yeah. <laughs> There's something delightful about it. And then I have always wondered about, and if you don't want to share this on the podcast, we can totally edit this part out, but I have always wondered about the rules of the name tags. Oh. Uh, like, I know a... that there's always a person with headphones. I have never know what they're listening to. Mm -hmm. And I know that they ask me what my name is and what gets put on the card is never that thing. <laughs> yes. Those are basically the rules. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I mean, ideally, the, the, and the, the name tags are a source of a lot of discussion when we have time to d discuss the random things and not just try to make sure that we can survive making theater in this climate um, and pay people to do it. But uh, the name tags, ideally what you're doing is you're listening to something that you really can't hear what people say to you yeah so so you're responding to things and you're kind of, I, I like people do it differently i like to free associate um with what i'm listening to and like what i've written before and sometimes you'll get on runs but the idea ultimately is to give them something that isn't an actual name definitely not their name mm -hmm. and i would say the third stated rule is that it's not offensive mm -hmm. that's good <laughs> Which is subjective, what offensive is. Um, and, but, but ideally, you're giving somebody something that is a unique, a little unique experience for them. I think that's interesting. And I, don't, I know we've, you know, we're already going off script. But I, I, I like, I, that is a fascinating sort of like beginning to the experience, right? Mm -hmm. that, is a, that is an interesting first move. And it sets your audience up to... How do I put this? Like, to consider themselves in a certain way in this space, right? It's a little bit of magic circle we're mm -hmm. talking about here, right? They've entered the magic circle of this experience, and they are asked to give their name and are given something else, and that allow that informs them of what this evening is going to be in a certain way, right? That like, they are that it also gives them a certain degree of permission to perform, right? And I and I think that like just the mechanic of that is such a uh, joyful and um effective means of communicating to the audience like who they are in this space uh and the permissions that that surround that yeah if people i mean there it's it's a fine line too uh, if people 
go too deep into it with the rules that we give. They're like, yeah. well, why am I getting a name that's not my own? But they don't get those rules until they've sat in the space and the show is beginning, right? right. So, so by getting the name tag on entry, they're given something that kind of uh, jars the reality that they're playing with and the way that they would normally be in a theatrical space. They're, yeah. they're being given permission on one level to participate in a way that maybe they, as themselves, before they came in the space, wouldn't think they could. Yeah. We're, we're still asking them, ultimately, to be themselves, but they don't know that before they get in, <laughs> ideally, if they've never been before. Um, so we're giving them that ability to be like, okay, now I can shout numbers. Now I can go up on stage and tell my truths too if I, if I prompt it. Now I can flock around the space with the Neos and, and all that, you know? <laughs> all these things I've seen, yes. Absolutely. Um, both of you have pretty long careers with the Neos. Rob, can you tell us a little bit about what attracted you to the Neos? Oh, sure, sure. Um, I, I was in Chicago and I was doing classical theater, uh, touring, uh, trying to just do anything creatively to put it out there and make money. I was making TV commercials as well on the, on the regional scale, which was super fun, all that stuff. And then I started going to Poetry Slams and the Neo Futurist in Chicago. And through that was asked to audition or Maybe they didn't ask me. Maybe I just heard about it. I don't know. I like to think that they asked me. But th but some of the <laughs> Neos definitely said, hey, we're doing this. You should think about this. Because um, they were in the Poetry Slam scene. And then I got cast. And I thought that I was going to come to New York to do it for six months. And that was... Well... <laughs> yeah. Over, over 25 years ago. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, I, I, I love the I love the storytelling. I, I you know what attracted me to it was just it was just it, wild. There was no theater I'd ever seen like that, right? And and to be able to take a bunch of people's different stories and put them in random order and create a show, it's different all the time. I love that idea. What I found by doing it more and more is what I also love is the community that we're creating and the the people that we're bringing together not only in the ensemble to collaborate and create with and put our work in conversation with, but also the nightly community that we're creating at the theater. That mm -hmm. is equally as important as the initial wildness that attracted me to it. The initial just energy and fervor that was that, that show that I went to above a funeral home in the north side of Chicago. Oh man, I want to ask more about those questions, but I, I do think I want to keep moving. Okay. Anthony, what keeps you excited about working on the Infinite Wrench and Hit Play? Yeah, it seems almost like a given in some ways to always be excited about working on the Infinite Wrench just because of both. I mean, I think the number one thing, as Rob mentioned, is the community aspect. I think, especially in the last few years, I think that aspect has really increased in significance in the work that we do. 
I think part of um, us going into lockdown and having one another as both an interpersonal support system and an artistic support system. Like we did not stop making art um, through 2020, through 2021. We kept on finding new ways to support one another and the interpersonal bonds really grew from that. Which is like, you could say, you know, we like making making art and we're excited about art coming from and with people that we like. That can be true really anywhere. Um, though I do think it's special here. Mm. Um, I think the thing that keeps me engaged and interested is, in addition to that, is the mechanisms that we have in place. Um, these games, these rules the that keep us going. We do the Infinite Wrench 50 weeks out of the year. Friday and Saturday nights, 50 weeks out of the year, plus some specialty shows here and there on top of that. Um, and we do so within a system that is excitingly generative. Because we have this structure, we have this structure that supports the production of work 50 weeks out of the year. Um, it's how we've gotten to almost 7,000 plays in New York is because these structures work in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. um, having these collaborators to bounce ideas off of, having this deadline of this iterative show makes the process of bringing these plays to life really exciting. Um, it is also exciting to know that if a play is going in for its world premiere one Friday night, that doesn't need to be the final version of the play. So many uh, in conventional theater, so many, so much of the work is putting in hours and hours and hours and hours until that first premiere in front of an audience. But we don't really work that way because a play is likely going to go on and have more life afterwards. Like we have the time between week to week to sort of chew and digest and say, hey, but what if we did it another way? Um, and how is it talking to the new plays that are coming into the show next week? What do we need? What do we, how do we balance these menus to create uh, an exciting thing that is ever changing? The audience is never going to see the same show twice um, in, a really dr in a really drastic way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and you know, what that brings to me is just like, you know, there's the iterative nature of it, right? And that, and that you know, why I said earlier, they're experiments because not only is the experiment never concluded, like the show itself, the play itself, but you are bringing different elements, plays around that play, people that are in the play that were different than the people in the play last week, what the audience is in the play. And so you've got these structures, you've got these ga this game with these rules, and then you're like, okay, within those rules, what are the possibilities? And I would say the possibilities, even though you have those rules, are endless, they're infinite. So, and you can never hit them all. Like, no one can hit the infinite possibilities ever. That's infinite. <laughs> you know, like, get on board and see, see how many different things you can hit and how many different experiences you can celebrate and bring with other people to the stage. That's because why. It's I, in a random I mean, order. That, yeah. Vibrancy. It's in a random like, order, you don't know, is, did the play before this one require everyone in the ensemble to put on fake mustaches? Uh, oh no, does the 
stage smell like soup because we spilled soup as a part of a play three plays before this. Is everybody soaked in water or beer or or dirt? You don't know. And then you or all of a sudden have on to... the verge of tears and they need to break out into a dance number. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's um, wonderful. So what has always intrigued me about the Infinite Wrench and its predecessor and like the reason that we're having this conversation today with regards to Arc Doom um, is this race against the clock. And I have always been mm -hmm. curious as someone who is not a performer with the Neos, is not a technician with the Neos, um, for both of you separately, what is it like working on a show that has a fully randomized order where you are also trying to get everything done in 60 minutes if possible? Um, and I'll pitch that to Rob first. Oh, I'll go second. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> <I> just... <laughs> Go ahead, Tony. I'm sorry. Okay, yeah, you'll go second. <laughs> um, often when I am training new technical collaborators to uh, be in the booth for the Infinite Wrench, I will say this is probably going to be one of the hardest to learn um, board operating gigs you will ever have. But once you get into the flow of it, it's going to be the most interactive, engaging, and really dynamic board operating gigs you'll ever have. Um, you do feel as if you, you, you do feel this way because you are in this way, a really tangible part of the show. Mm -hmm. um, and a part of that is working with and against the clock. We, we describe the clock, some people describe it as an enemy, others, uh, who are more correct, in my opinion, describe it as a frenemy. Um, uh, it's a collaborator. A collaborator, <laughs> yes. An essential, essential part of the company. Um, it, it gives stakes to the game, as we were talking before about risk. Yes, it gives stakes, but it also keeps us accountable in other ways. Like, we are, we are watching it and we are working with it, um, there was something I was going to say, but it's left my brain. Oh, it it asks us to have finesse in the chaos. Oh, yes. I love that. I love that. Because I don't know if this... The clock can be seen as an enemy. But time also gives us permission. It gives us a place. It gives us something to work with and it allows us to understand that sometimes what we've written, what we've created needs to be crafted slightly differently. In order to fit into the concept of the show, you can sometimes feel if a play is, is taking too much of the time, right? And, ha and, then, and, then, and then how do you hone it? How do you do that? And some people don't wanna do that. I get it, but for me, I'm like, okay, how can how can some of the plays I write be more efficient? How can they? And and I will sometimes go back and and, and redraft and redraft in order to cut that down. Not always. I mean, I, I'm I'm guilty of having three minute <laughs> plays just like every neo. I mean, I just had one in the show the other week. Um, but that being said, I knew it. I knew that it was right. I knew that that play was that, 
and therefore I also then wrote plays that were a minute 20 and and or one that took 30 seconds and the rest of the play was after the clock had expired right so and then and then the other thing that's really cool and I don't know if this is answering your question at all but but like in the world of how we play with a timer right we play with the clock we play with time to make it like we break the rules like we stop the clock sometimes or we have so we have things that happen out of the time of the show even though it's really part of the show right we have we have things that happen after the show's over we have things that happen that have residuals beyond the day that even the show happens and so when you do that you i i feel that we now understand that you have to do that with purpose because you're telling the audience that it's this mm-hmm. thing and if you're then going to do this thing that totally breaks time not possible um, but breaks the time of the show then 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 you better have a good reason for it or mm-hmm. just do it willy-nilly super catically and that's a good enough reason in my mind but not everybody's <laughs> right like so so you have that other thing to work with in a way that that even an answer to a question that has been this long is too or this is, is too long for the show right yeah. Like it, I would, I would have, if I wrote this for the, the, the show, I would have con- consolidated a lot. Well, and I think that's what's interesting. Just our listeners will are, are in the process of listening to our Arc Doom uh, campaign, which Anthony's a part of. But I think even, even listening to that early on in that campaign, there are actions that are taken, like the players, and Anthony, you can speak to this better. Like there's a certain point where people go, oh, wow, I only had an hour. And I didn't get nearly as much done as I thought I could. And the way in which they approach taking action within this, the narrative of the game fully changes after that, right? As soon as that, as soon as that time mechanic starts happening, like the way that I move throughout the world is much less, much less lackadaisical, right? It becomes much more intentioned and purpose because they have that. And I think that's a very similar sort of like crossover, certainly to what we're what you all are, are talking about, right? It's a similar sort of thing. Well, you find the efficient, you find the yes. efficiencies. I mean, I, you know, obviously this, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not in the campaign with y'all, but obviously the stakes are very different in in the game. I mean, yeah. this is, we're not, we're not, we're hopefully not uh, trying to uh, work with time and avoid cataclysm. I think, right? Um, mm-hmm. In 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 the infinite wrench, but <laughs> but there, it, it is interesting. One of the things that we talk about in doing our show is that like plays themselves need to. It still exists in the time that they're supposed to exist in, no matter what the timer, no matter what the clock's saying. Like you should not speed up a play that is a very lovely elegy or whatever just because you know you only have a minute and a half left and it's a two-minute play. No, you should wait to program it until you have time. Well, no, you should just let the clock go out. Oh, oh yeah. like if you're in the middle of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're in the show. Oh, oh, yeah. oh yes, yes, yeah. yes. Because yes. the, the, the wild thing is, people often ask this, you know, do you figure out the time of each play and then, like, put those plays in based on time slots? It's like, no, we just have a feeling. Okay, we need some shorter plays this week in order to, uh, you know, balance the longer ones. And, and, th- and, then, it's, and then it really is an attempt. You know, it, yeah. and, and, and I would argue, I prefer it when we finish with some regularity, but by not finishing the show in the... In the one hour, six in the sixty minutes, it's not a failure. No. It's it's that's what the show is, and it's uniquely that. It's just how it went. Because there are so many things in our show too that like they can they can expand, and you never know how long they're going to take, even even though you've done them before. I think I think one thing just before we, not not to harp on this too much, but I think 
you, I like you using the word efficiency, right? That you're, but you're searching for the efficiency of storytelling in there, and like as as you're doing this relative to the clock, and as it pertains to those the what I was talking about with like the change in mm. efficiency in gameplay, I think what becomes interesting is okay, so what am I making efficient as a player in that situation? I am making my character efficient. My mm -hmm. like I am characterizing myself if in, a, in an efficient way. What am I about, right? And like, and by doing that, I I sort of like narrow focus to a certain degree of like what really matters, and it gets it gets you driving forward. And I think it's actually a very interesting thing to it has been very interesting to listen to, in our campaign. Everybody sort of like get to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to, I, I right? totally Yeah, and I think there's something to that in that it is not always the plot that needs no. to be gotten to faster. Similar Sorry. to what Rob was getting at, mm -hmm. a play is going to take the time it takes to do the play, and it's not always going to be this to that. I think in, yeah. the, ga in the way that ARC sets up the way you can use your time, I think there's also something really excited to be thought of with the bonds um, system. Like, yes. And developing your character is not a useless uh, use of your time. I think there's something really uh, impactful about that. Like, yes, you are working against the clock to prevent the apocalypse, but it is just as valuable to be working on and uh, to be doing a scene that is really just for character development in a way to understand how you are building these bonds, how are you using these bonds, then to further along the plot action, which I think super yeah. juicy there it's the how mm -hmm. right it's not the not the it's the, the binary of do we do we stop the apocalypse do we not is less is always going to be there for every time you play the game it is the how we do it that is why that is the reason we do it in the first place yeah. and i would argue that's that's theater that's that's what we're doing right that's <laughs> it's the, the journey over the yeah, you're not you're not playing for the for the end of the of the thing to happen. You're it's playing the for the friends we made along the way. You know what I mean? Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. It's the minor bonds we spent along the way. <laughs> oh, I want to apologize for the long windedness of this next question, but <laughs> I know over the years different neos have also done like longer format productions mm -hmm. with the company. Um, I'm thinking of things like Like a Dog in Space, The Human Symphony, The Complete and Condensed Stage Directions of Eugene O'Neill, Volume 2, um, or You're in an Open Field. And I only got to see, or rather be in, The Human Symphony. And while it definitely had like roots in some of the work that Dylan Maron was doing with the Neos, with an iPad, na an iPod Nano and like mm -hmm. instructions for people, mm -hmm. which was mm -hmm. really cool. Um, it definitely didn't keep the same focus on racing against the clock um, and that sort of thing. So my question is, what sort of organizing principle, if any, do you feel is behind the larger format shows? Or like more simply, what makes a Neo show a Neo show? Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think originally what we were just doing was saying, okay, on average, <laughs> the shows are the plays are two minutes and then it's thirty and then sixty and then and then we're gonna do ten minute ones and that's six and sixty and then we're gonna do twenty minute ones <laughs> and that's three and sixty and now we're gonna do a sixty minute one and then whatever. Um, so there was some clock involved in the kind of like here's how oh, it is. But then yeah. but then but then once we said okay we're gonna do 
six plays or three plays or two plays or one play, then it's like, well, we're not going to time them anymore. It's not about a race. Mm-hmm. And, it's, mm-hmm. and we'll embrace elements of time and randomness maybe within the, the shows, but, but, but the idea is that their, the core is still neo-futurism, which isn't necessarily time-based theater. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, it's we've more done along the lines of what you were talking about with the sort of like we are who we are where we are. Yep, those four tenets were a, what you were ideally embracing, but also you were kind of looking at probably when in all those like you were talking about Dylan's play and 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 Adam and uh, Marta and everybody all those other plays like a dog, which was the one that I did with Evan as well and Carl, mm-hmm. um, and those and plays me. were. And Chris, yes. Um, yeah. And so we did all those shows as expansions of shorter plays. Mm. And so, and actually, Like a Dog was a two minute play that turned into a 10 minute play and then turned into, what do we end up get, clocking in? Like 70 minutes, 75 minutes? Yeah, so, it was 75, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I still think, I still think that a lot of those plays have elements that are little little chapters or little vignettes within the larger scope but they hopefully cohere as one piece of storytelling mm-hmm. right so in like a dog that was pretty straightforward in in you were in the open field and not just a those were pretty straightforward we did a play called Unafraid around this time, a long time ago, because it was about scary stuff. And it was in random order. It wasn't a race against the clock, but there were elements that were in random order that were, wow, determined by a Ouija board. And <laughs> we did it. And, <laughs> and it was a weird and amazing show. Um, but it still wasn't worried about the time element. Mm-hmm. And except for that, we—I don't think—we've never done a show that had an intermission. Thankfully, um, <laughs> no offense, intermission shows, but yeah. <laughs> but I'm a big I'm fan of for you intermission shows. Yeah, <laughs> intermissions, God, get off my lawn. Um. <laughs> I think there's also something maybe even to be said about how we're approaching our newest season of our podcast, Hit Play, mm-hmm. um, with more long-form audio storytelling. Um, where the episodes are normally around half an hour, um, but we can find those chunked into different segments or different explorations or different experiments. Um, And in that, as we've expanded out from the more short form, even just audio work in our prior seasons of Hit Play, we are always asking um, the folks who are bringing forward the episodes to find like we were talking before, the most efficient, the most condensed version of the story they're trying to tell. That can mean that you're going on like a long spanning journey, but that is still the most condensed, most efficient way that you're getting this point across and getting your very specific viewpoint into, in this case, the ears of the listeners. In in these kind of collaborations in neo-futurism, the thing that's really fun, I think, is that is we're constantly pushing against time and what time is. And, and sometimes when you look at uh, a piece in itself, the experiment leads you to go, oh, 
I need to try this as something that takes less time. But sometimes it's quite the opposite. And you're like, oh, I can expand time, play with time longer forms and push this and see how far it goes. And the answer may be, that's too far, go back. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you get to play, you get to experiment. Yeah, that's rule number four. The time is now. Yeah. So there's always yes. going to be time moving. Now, yeah. What I think is so interesting, too, is this is the sort of thing, I don't know, I think about, like, uh, when we're making theater just in general, right? Like, lots of people, every, every theater is the present moment. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? The, the craft, the crafting of, the, of, of, of theater, to, by, for my, by my estimation, is often argued and, just, and you know, like, we dissect it in like grad schools and things like that, but um, but to 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 me the actual craft, the actual materials of theater are sort of like are the is the contract between an audience and a, and a performer, right? It's the contract of yeah, I'll still I'll still say I'll still sit here and I'll give you my attention, and time has so much to do with it because you think about things that like we were talking about it in new intermissions and how it's very normal for people to be like, Oh, 90 minutes, no intermission. That's what people want to program right now. Cause that's what people will sit through and you know, all those sorts of things. And YouTube has made it even now it's a, now it's 70 minutes, you know, and all those, all, all these different things. And at the same time, then you'll have like elevator repair service put out a, put out a six hour performance of gats and it, and like, or uh, the comeuppance happening at Playwrights at, at Signature with Brandon Jacob Jenkins that is like a two and a half hour play with no intermission. And like, honestly, I didn't feel a second of that time. Right. And, and it's something that we are. But at the same time, you look at like, frankly, Waiting for Godot is a great example of this, wherein the passage of time is the obstacle that the characters are are experiencing. And the experiment of it as a theatrical endeavor is having the audience align with the characters. And when it works, it's because you are also enduring the time with the characters and you feel a community in that moment, right? And it, and as long and that's why those so many productions of that show fucking fail <laughs> because they don't they don't get it, right? They don't hit that thing like you were saying and perhaps that show can't even exist anymore because it is from 1940s and we are not the same audience that it It's was about before. to Godot. Well, oh, oh well. What are they doing it again? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, Michael man, Michael uh, Shannon and, and um, Paul Sparks why? That fine. Theater, theater for the new audience. Fine. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, okay, you it's know. It's tempting. It's, I mean, it's, it's probably good. I want to go. I'm going to go. Every time it shows up, I'm going to go. <laughs> I'm going to go and I'm going to be like, I'm going to be like, yeah, all right, no, didn't work. You know, or so, it did. Yeah. Anyway, I, I, uh, I want to thank you both uh, for joining this conversation. Um, and I also want to, I also, uh, I did, I mentioned I got emotional earlier. I want to take this time to thank uh, Rob and to thank the Neo-Futurists for, in many ways, um, helping me figure out who the fuck I wanted to be as an artist when I was 22 years old. And I didn't know anybody, and I didn't know anything, and they took a chance on me to let me go into the booth because Lindsay Perlman said, I met a kid named Chris, he seems capable mm. to, that's literally what she said to Lauren Parrish when they were like, we DOS the tech, we, is somebody available? And she said that. And then I went up into that booth, having never run a show in my entire life on a two scene preset, which I'd never seen in my entire life. And you let me 
be a tech for two years and figure out how to do that. And I learned a lot about how to be an artist because of that and because of you and because of the um, example that you all set. So thank you personally. And uh, is there anything upcoming that y'all would oh. like to plug? <laughs> anything going on beyond the incident? I mean, the infinite rent. It's Fridays and Saturdays, 50 weeks, yeah. a, week, 50 weeks yeah. a year. I mean, show yeah. up. Let's hope. Let's hope. That's the idea. Uh, yeah. No. Th and thanks for your work in doing that. I mean, you know, that's the idea. So it's like we're gonna we're gonna put people together on a team to make cool shit. And and there's some rules, and there's hopefully a space, and I, ideally there's an audience, um, and 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 we can pay people to do that, and that's that is that's magic. That mm -hmm. is. That is, and we're gonna keep doing it. You know, we're looking at a new space. We're at the Crane until uh, December sixteenth is our final show at the Crane. So mm -hmm. we have, um, I don't know what is it. I don't know when people hear this, but a few weeks left probably when they hear this. Uh, so they should come and see it, and that then we'll go somewhere else, and we'll be doing the Infant Wrench somewhere else, and that's uh, gonna be announced probably at some point in November. So they can go to our website uh, nynf.org to check that out. And then um, we do this amazing podcast that Tony, you want to say more about Hit Play? Sure thing. Yeah. Um, while we are doing The Infinite Wrench every week, every other week on Mondays, you can listen to our podcast Hit Play. We are now in season four of Hit Play. Um, in this season, uh, we are doing something we are calling Hit Play Impossible Task, where uh, each episode, we are following a neo-futurist on their attempt to complete an impossible task, whatever that may look like. <laughs> episode one of this new season was uh, neo-futurist Lee working to conjure ghosts. And then along these paths, we, you know, hit on some tangential metaphorical explorations. Does Mike Manship make his way onto an active NBA roster? <laughs> listen to find out that launched that just launched yeah yeah and and you can find you can find all that we have our past seasons because this is season four on our website as well and and once we land in a space uh we'll also get back to teaching some workshops so people can learn mm -hmm. how to storytell with us like us uh, which is applicable beyond just the short form play um yeah so we we're gonna we're gonna keep bringing art to uh, New York, and I mean, there, there are companies in, in Chicago still cranking it. There's a company in San Francisco as well, and, um, and also Degenerate Fox in London, who plays, I think, every other week right now. So there's, there's neo-futurism happening in those official places and also <laughs> beyond. There are lots of people doing neo-futurism that don't do the infinite wrench because the delivery mechanism doesn't matter on one level. Uh, it's about having this ability to create and collaborate together. Tell the stories. Excellent. Um, thanks so, so much, folks. You can join us next week on Dungeons & Drama Nerds as we head into the final episodes of Season 3. See you then! Dungeons & Drama Nerds is produced by Todd Brian Backus, Percival Hornack, and Nicholas Orbis. And this episode was mixed and edited by Percival Hornack. Season 3 features contributions from Christopher Dierksen, Ben Ferber, Corey Flores, Tess Huth, Romana Isabella, Leo Mock, John John Johnson, Dex Fawn, and Anthony Sertaldine. 
If you'd like to help us continue exploring the intersection of theater and tabletop role-playing games, consider leaving us a review on your podcast app of choice or supporting us, and getting access to our patron-only bonus content at patreon.com slash dungeonsanddramanerds. You can find our social media and website links, including our cast bios, at the link tree in our show notes. And be sure to tune in next week for another episode of Dungeons and Drama Nerds.